Welcome to the Rethinking Podcast, Finding Truth Beyond the Rhetoric. I'm Dan, here with my friend, longtime friend Brad, with whom I often study and talk politics. And we've been looking at politics lately. We've been <laughs> this is in the in the middle of COVID nineteen turned into uh, the protests over George Floyd's death that have rioting and looting in them as well. And and it's a let's say that political life is at a pretty complicated time right now. And uh, there's a lot to think about, a lot to consider. And we're trying to get beyond the rhetoric, as our name implies, and try and consider really what what the issues are, how you can think about them a little clearer, how you can rethink some of them so that you can see the issues in a wider way and consider some things you probably haven't considered before, and to really apply some precise thinking to to some of the issues and so that you can find specific solutions and understand how these would really make things better and not just be more talking points by another politician. So what we want to talk about today is is police authority. And I think you'll agree with me that first of all we were we were even hesitant to talk about this because there's so much yeah. you know pol- there's there's so much political baggage attached to it. You know, I I've seen that as I as I talk with friends, I go to work, and everyone, everyone has an opinion, you know, of, of one sort or another. Everyone's yeah. got strong feelings about it. Um, but but I've noticed, and it's interesting that, you know, there there are some ideas that are floating around out there, like defund the police. You know, there are legitimate reforms out there, and I and I and I support I support looking at reforms. But I notice that a lot of people, as they look at it they're they're unhappy but but they're also not really sure where they're at you know per heard people people say things like you know i i definitely stand for this but i don't know about that you know etc etc yeah and it's precisely what i've been seeing you know people people have people feel obligated at this time to say something i've seen people make political comments on social media Friends of mine, you know, people I've known my entire life who have never said a word on the subject until this moment. It's, it's a, interesting, it, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's, it's strange. It, it people are people are more emotionally involved and connected to to politics and particularly to the issue of policing than I think they've ever been. The thing that that makes me really want to talk about this with you is that is that despite the fact that literally everyone under the sun is talking about this. I, I still have have yet to see a really good look at what the police's function is and why they're there and the basis of their authority and what that means for for not just George Floyd but for so many others and for all the reforms they're proposing. It seems like so many people are proposing reforms because they sound good and not because they're actually based on something. Right. And I, and I think that yeah. that's, that's the issue. Yeah. And it, I, I mean, I've seen a, there's a, there's a somewhat famous list going around. Is it 70 things, 75 things? If you've got a list of 75 things that you think should be done, that's not, those aren't goals and those aren't reforms. That's, that's like a wish list. Yeah. You need, you need something more specific than that, much more specific than that if you want to make changes. And so as we consider this, we want to pr- propose some changes, some things to consider, some things that we think are major issues that you, that we want to draw attention to that have been there for quite some time, 
and that would make a real difference in this. So many people are willing to say, like, maybe we should defund the police. You know, they're, they're, they're at the point where they're considering even the existence of it. And I don't know how large that group actually is, you know, but, but the fact that it's there and that, that for some people it's a serious question on the table suggests to me that it's, it's the perfect time to really consider this from the ground up, to consider the policing at a basic level, to strip away, you know, the, the, the myriad things that go into it, the, the thousand things that police officers do and, and view it in perhaps in a way that, that many people have never thought of it. But what would society, what is society like without it or prior to police? And then how, what is that role that the police fill in a, in a very you know, basic sense, in a basic way? Um, what is it that they have authority or should have authority to do naturally? And reconsider it from there because there's, it's very clear that things like what happened to George Floyd should not happen, should never happen. If at all possible, I mean, you can't completely eliminate all mistakes, but certainly we can we can do better than we have been. And so many with so many people interested in doing better, this is the perfect time to actually seriously consider ways that we can do it, and we can consider it from the ground up. So, so let's do that. Let's walk it back. So you know me, I I am an extremist. Like to take things, they're very extreme when it comes to ideas, anyways. Yeah, it's so, really useful tool in logic if you if you can to carry an idea to its extreme and see if it so, see how it works. So let's carry an idea to an extreme. You know, let's say that you strip away not just the police but but everything else, and you just leave me. You strip away society, infrastructure, and you just have me providing for myself. You know, alone in a state of nature, right? As as the political philosophers like to say. So it's just me. You know, I'm, 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 I'm hunting, I'm gathering, I'm collecting resources in order to survive, right? Right. There is, there's obviously no need for a police force, and a police force makes no sense because it's just me. <laughs> now. You'd make a great know, police force, to be fair. I, I, oh, I, no I'm not even there. I can't even say anything about it. But. Exactly. Exactly. I am the ultimate police force because I police myself most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> Fair enough. Inflicted injuries, I would have course, got myself for. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, caught me dr- taking a drink. I about spewed it into my microphone. That's that's really my goal with this podcast. <laughs> so, so, succeeded. Anyways, so, so obviously, you know, you introduce, you know, you. Now, here comes Dan King, who moves in next door out of nowhere, which is strange. Because um, he knows I don't like him. Yeah, likely, likely I'm foraging in the same place or maybe growing some crops somewhere where we might encounter each other. Fair enough. You've reached a point where there can be, there can be trade, but there can also be conflict because I can go over and I can steal your berries because honestly, a stolen berry just tastes better to me than a foraged berry. So, (laughs) so I can steal your berries and, and you could try and steal mine and you can also try and defend yourself from me. You know, I come to steal your berries and you slap my hand away with a stick, right? <laughs> and that's and that would be the first instance of self-defense in this, our little hypothetical world, right? Right, right. The other, you know, very, yeah, very with simple. human interaction. Of course, there may be animals or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Human interaction, yeah, this, human is, interaction this is self-defense, yeah. Self-defense of, you know, a pack of deer against a, a coyote. 
even <laughs> though they have it. That's neither here nor there. I, I told you I like extremes, but not that extreme. <laughs> we're not, so we're not so dial it back. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so by self-defense here, you mean, yeah, what we would normally refer to in communities as self-defense. You're protecting yourself from another person. Exactly. And the important thing here is that is that no one had to authorize you or give you permission to defend yourself, right? Right. It's it's what we would say natural or 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 god-given, you know, depending on on your beliefs, but definitely a natural law that you have the right to protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you would be it'd be and silly to look for justification at that point. There'd be even no there'd be no one to even talk to about it. You're exactly. Just, you're just exactly. protecting your own. Protecting your own. It's, so it's very, it's, I mean, it's very basic, a very basic idea because it's a very basic world that we've created here. But then, then we introduce a third person and then maybe a fourth or a fifth until we've got 10 people now who are, who are foraging, maybe even farming a little in this area, right? And much more complex interactions at that point and especially yeah, if you, much you add families into this and. Exactly, exactly. And maybe, maybe you start even reaching a point of specialization, right? Where where you're fantastic at picking berries, and I'm a fantastic fisherman, so I trade some of my my fish for your berries, so that I can focus just on fishing, and you can focus on you know gathering berries. Right, and it begins and, to look and like down the line yeah. with person three, four, or five. Yeah, so at that and point we have look, a market, a developing economy per se, so that people exactly, are, are, exactly. are acting in distinct ways. We're no longer all doing the same exact things just for ourselves. And we now are interacting regularly, which is probably going to increase significantly the maybe the friction in some sense. It'll it'll certainly increase. Uh, uh, there are a lot of benefits to interacting, but it's it's one thing to watch my back against one person, and it's another thing to watch my back against ten people. And we're going to steal someone's berries that are probably in their hand, going into their mouth. Right, if you're living hand to mouth in a very simple. You're living alone on an island or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the the temptation to theft just isn't all that great. But if you've got uh, a more developed economy, you've got something more complex. You've got uh, you're starting to get uh, maybe not luxury, but certainly things that are going to be useful tomorrow and the next day, and not just consumed immediately. Then yes, you're gonna you're gonna have there's gonna be much more benefit to trying to steal some of those things. Yeah, and, 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 and there'll also be much more emotional reasons to commit crimes as well, you know? Yeah. There'll be that root yeah, thing you the said dinner yeah. last night. Exactly, as these relationships form. And so that's going to change everything. And then as this community grows, we're going to reach a point. Because even with 10 people, you know, yeah, if they're we, spread I'd, out. Feel like, I'd feel like I could defend myself. Like, I don't see any need to specialize there, right? right. I can take care of myself. But as, as our society grows and maybe we even have a few different communities, you know, of 20 or 30 people and some of these communities, you know, individuals are, are starting to, to try and steal on a regular basis. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or you get a group that comes in from outside or whatever. And yeah. 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 And there, and there start to be maybe roaming bandits. And, and I pose the idea, I say, Hey, you know, I don't know about you guys, but, but I, I have these dried fish that I store at my home that have been stolen, you know, two or three times now. And, and I can't stay at home to defend these, these dried fish. I have to go, I have to go get the fish. You know, I can't, I can't do both. 
Right. And and I know the same is true with with most of you. So why don't we 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 choose Gary here, who is a is is strong and he's honest, and we all trust him. And instead of Gary doing what he normally did, we're going to all pay him, basically, you know, through our barter and trade to protect all of our resources. You know, so that when we go out, he will patrol our area and make sure that no one steals, that no one murders, that no one commits any violence towards any other person, right? Because in this state of nature, that's really all that we have a right to is ourselves and our possessions, right? And so that's obviously what we care about and what we would want him to protect. Right. So so now he's got a person we, to we protect use, us. Yeah, and we use the word sheriff like and you probably imagine a shiny badge and a handgun or whatever <laughs> and he's the he's the authority figure in quotes. Um but but the authority that he holds is not any particular authority that's unique to him. He's just helping to defend you, which you could already do, and defend somebody else, which they could already do, and defend somebody else, which they could already do. There's no, there's no his authority hasn't increased per se. His powers haven't increased. He's merely protecting the things that we could already protect. And in in a point to your uh, your description of of when it would be worth getting a sheriff, when it would be worth hiring someone to take on this duty in a full-time or part-time capacity. It makes a lot of sense. If you're, if you're losing goods on a regular basis that you've invested a lot of time and work into, like you mentioned the dried fish, the fish don't dry themselves. They don't catch themselves. They don't dry themselves. They don't store themselves. When you still, when that starts to happen from time to time, it begins to be worth more for you to pay a small amount to a sheriff than it would be for you not to. You're, you're losing so much that it, you actually make money per se. You actually become wealthier by paying this, this person to take on the duties of policing. Yeah. Otherwise, why would I do it? Otherwise, why, why, would, yeah, right. why, why would I, why would I hire, hire this, this man to protect us if, you know, I only have a handful of fishes stolen every other month and that's it. No other violence is perpetrated against me. No one, no one tries to attack me. Yeah, there's no real risks this, to you or losses. Yeah, exactly. Or if no, if nothing was being stolen, where would be my reason? You know what I right. mean? Which is right. how yeah. it was in that smaller community. There, there was no incentive. And yeah. So obviously, there was no. I mean, like you said, there was no sheriff. You know, even though he wouldn't have had that title, there was no sheriff because there was no need. There was no need. Yeah, it, it wouldn't be. It w- you would end up losing so much more in terms of your goods and labor, the things you've invested your time and effort into by paying a sheriff than you would by not. And so it makes sense that at some point it's going to become cost effective per se to hire a sheriff. And at that point, reasonable people will band together and say, look, we need, we need somebody full time or maybe even part time wandering around, keeping an eye on things and backing us up when we get attacked or when we have a problem or trying to track down these people or keep them out of our community, or however however he decides to go about it. Uh, but at some point, that's going to become more effective. Yeah, exactly. And then and then you take that argument further, where you say, "Hey, you know, we have some new weapons technologies 
there are spears and, uh, you know, rocks and slings that take time and practice to be good at. And we don't have that time. So even if we get attacked, we can't defend ourselves well versus, you know, this man that we've chosen. If he can spend, you know, the majority of his day split between guarding us and training to become better, then he is even more effective. You know, and then as our community gets larger, it can be multiple people and it, it can become something, something larger. But at the same time, is still operating under those exact same principles. Right. That, right. That, that he is simply exercising our own power of self-defense. And, and it makes sense that people are, that people are extraordinarily upset with the police right now. And, and that, uh, that there, cause there are some legitimate grievances against them. And obviously with this, uh, this major event happening, but it's also, and, and what they're looking at is they're looking at this and they're saying, wait a second, we want to defund the police because what if paying the police officers isn't making us better off? What if, what if it's a net loss? What if it's all, I mean, in some cases people will say the police are doing all bad. And I don't think that's the case at all, but, but even if they don't have to be doing all bad for you to want to defund them, you could, you could, if you come to the point where you think you're actually losing more in terms of the things that are important to you, whether it be happiness or wealth or, or however the things that you care about than you are gaining, then the role of the police becomes a serious question. And that's why this, this way of thinking about it is so useful because we want to get back to the point where everybody can look at this. We want to make the reforms and the changes or whatever it may take necessary so that people can look back at this and feel like having the police is a net gain feel like having the police it makes them better off and that it's a it's a decision that makes sense because it's going to result in better lives and that's that's what this point we're talking about is this point where it would be it would make sense for you not to have a have a sheriff and then you get to the point where it would make sense for you to have one and and if we can figure out what the why that makes sense it can give us some really interesting insights into what the role of the police should be and in, in what, what things everyone would agree the police can and should be doing and have the, thereby have the authority to do and what they don't have the authority to do or what we, what many people would say is, is too far. I, I really like that. I, I think there's power in, in looking at it that way and thinking, I mean, everyone does things because, we we expect benefit, right? You know, we work so that we can get a paycheck. You know, we we obey traffic laws so that we don't get a citation. You know, there's there's a clear cause and effect where we're making choices that we think will benefit us in every aspect of our lives. And and the 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 choice for a police force, the the training for a police force, the the very laws themselves that govern the police forces should be a part of that yeah you know that we should be considering what benefits us yeah and and if when you think of it in these terms um it makes a lot of the a lot of other ways of thinking about the police very seem very odd like if, if you're thinking about it in in this terms of like i've got these things that i want to do for myself and 
when I get to a point where I just can't do them, it's no longer effective for me to do them. I'm better off specializing in something else and my life will be better by doing that than by having to constantly watch my own back and do all these things. Then that makes it, that makes police authority and the basis of their authority a very different thing than if we say the police have the authority because it's a top down thing, right? Because it's the, their authority doesn't come from the people. Their authority doesn't come from the commoners that they're policing. The police are somehow something extra special. They're something above the average citizen. When they're not, in fact, they're merely specialists in some sense in, in protecting the, the people and what they, in, in ways that they already could anyway. Um, I don't think I said that very clearly, but, um, I always think of the concept of authority with police. People are always saying things like, well, police have the authority to do this and you don't have the authority to do that. And I think that way of thinking about the police is, uh, is a very bad way to think about it because authority suggests permission. And when you think of it from a moral standpoint, we've been talking about it kind of in an economic perspective and what's, what's good for you in terms of, of what you want to do with your life, whether that be economic goods that are hard goods like stuff, wealth, or even in terms of happiness and how you want to spend your time. But if you think of it in terms of, of what's moral and what would be moral to do, like everyone agrees that, that killing George Floyd was immoral. That was absolutely immoral. It was, a, it was an unjust yeah. act. And, and whether you're a member of the police or not does not change whether his death was justified. It just doesn't. I don't think morals work that way. I don't think ethics works that way. If, you, if you're a, if I'm a average citizen and I've killed someone or I'm a police officer and I've killed someone, either it's right or wrong. And whether we're a police officer or an average citizen isn't an important factor that weighs into whether that person deserved to die or not. It, it's just not, not a critical factor. And that's why we've put it in the terms that we have, because it's a, I think it's a much clearer way of thinking about it than the normal distinctions we make between ordinary citizens and police officers. Well, and it's, it's interesting, it's interesting that you bring that up because when you look at a lot of these, these police cases though, that's not these, these cases of, of police incidents, usually, you know, these, these fatal shootings that have occurred, these police shootings and that's not that's not how they go down you know they don't go down the police are not held to the same standard that everyone else is currently you know the the way the system is set up now is not that way you know that in order for a police officer to be to be charged with murder it's not the same criteria that an individual citizen has has to meet in order to get charged with that Right. So, so clearly, we're not living under that now. Right. Right. This the ideas that we we are discussing are, are certainly not the ones that are driving justice in and in so cases where police officers are in the wrong. And so that brings us to to you know point A to point B that there's that there's a uh, a, a just way to police. And then there's the way that it's currently being done, and they're two very different things. Yeah, because and, and the way it, I look at it, go ahead. The way I look at it is that if I was an ordinary citizen and I was there when when George Floyd was being killed, I 
I would have had a right to to pull out a gun and tell that officer to stand down or be shot. Right? Yeah. I believe that because that because that's as we talked about before, you don't need a permission slip to defend someone else's someone else's rights, right? Right. No. And so, uh, so yeah, this whole thing follows. comes from the ground up. It, it's not a top-down thing. It's not you don't have authority to protect someone. You don't you don't need someone's permission to do something good. It's just exactly, not the way but, it works. But but if I had done that, number one, I would have been shot. <laughs> number two, been if, shot. I, if I if I had survived, if I <laughs> this survived, is, for the record, this is all a theoretical exercise, right? We're not making well, not any recommendations anything, right? here. We're we're, think, are, we're trying to think about this clearly. Scenarios yeah. yeah, to to prove a point, right? But you're right. More First morally, you you certainly you had the authority to stop someone from being killed, like unjustly. Up. Obviously, you have the moral authority to do that. You don't need a permission slip for that. Keep going. Yeah, so first of all, I'd be shot. If I survived, I, I would be charged with, with assault. And so, Wait, so what and that not, means... not just assault. Against, assault assault against, against a police, police officer, officer. Which is a which different is charge. a different crime. It is a different crime. Absolutely. It's a worse crime. Absolutely. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a stiffer charge. And, and that's interesting because what that means is that we literally live in a world today where we do not have the right for self-defense. Let me, let me give you another example. You know, no-knock raids. No-knock raids are, have been around for a while. And the idea is, is that you don't give criminals a chance to dispose of illegal things, usually drugs or paraphernalia. Right. right. You don't right. give them a chance to escape. And you do, do that. By not knocking, not announcing the police presence until you've entered entered the residence and you just break in and arrest them. Yeah. The goal and of the no-knock raid makes a lot of sense. You're trying to catch them with their pants down. You're trying to catch them before they've destroyed the evidence, as you said, and, and gotten everything ready. And so so whether or not that's a practical idea for the police to do is not is not why I brought it up. The thing that's interesting about it is that there are cases – where individuals do not know that it is the police when they break in, right? right. Um, for example, let me, let me give you an example. There was a man named Tracy Ingle who was in Arkansas. There was a no-knock warrant. The police break in. And by the way, he, he it, it must have been the wrong house or something because there were, there were no drugs on the premises. You know, the thing they were searching for wasn't even there. But the police break in. Tracy has has no idea who they are, why they, you know, I mean, we're talking a matter of seconds, right? You know, as as people break into your home, he holds up a gun that is completely broken, just trying to threaten away whoever's broken in and gets shot several times by the police without him firing a shot because the gun's not even functional. So he survives, fortunately. He is in the ICU for several weeks. As soon as he's cleared from the ICU, he's immediately arrested and charged with aggravated assault <laughs> against the police officers. And, and it's so interesting because it's so clear looking at this case that this, this man who, who shouldn't have his had, had his home broken into in the first place doesn't have a right to self-defense if it's the police he's defending against. Yeah. You know, whether or not the police were in the right to break in doesn't even matter. All that matters is that he stood up to the police, and so he gets shut down, both physically and legally afterwards. Yeah, and and it's <laughs> examples like that are so frustrating, and, uh, and a lot of people don't hear about. You're hearing more about no knock raids right now in the news, rightfully so. 
no-knock raids, no-knock raids more so than perhaps any other common practice ends up putting police officers and innocent citizens in situations like that, um, where either the, the life of the, the citizen or the life of the police officer is going to be threatened or in jeopardy. And like, but, uh, I, and like I said, I'm not trying to argue for or against no-knock raids. The, the fact of the matter, though, is, is that if, let's say, that no-knock raids were justified, then if the police made a mistake or failed to announce themselves properly, then shouldn't the citizen who's just trying to defend himself have that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and how do and you... And it's become pretty clear that they don't. They, they don't. They don't. They don't. And... And the, and the worst part is that even if, even if you go and you go through the process, you get arrested, uh, no resistance, no, uh, no anything like that. You get arrested. There, there, it is, this is where, uh, a topic comes into play. Um, as we're getting kind of into the practical things, make a few policy suggestions. And one of the, one of the big ones is going to be about qualified immunity. Cause, cause even if they, they go to the wrong house and they kick in your door, and it just shatters into a million pieces. And then they realize that they're at the wrong place. You can do nothing to get them to repay you on that door. That that door mm-hmm. might as well have been shattered by, by a tornado, except for maybe your insurance covers tornadoes. Your insurance probably doesn't it cover doesn't police cover kicking in. Break in. Yep. <laughs> right. right? And this is, uh, this is known as qualified immunity, but it's the idea that the police officers – so if, if a police officer commits something that could be construed as a crime – you have no real way to initiate that process. That's entirely in the in the court of the district attorney. The district attorneys are the ones who prosecute crimes. And the district attorneys, unfortunately, are often very close to the police because they're often working with them to, to prosecute crimes, obviously. <laughs> they're 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 and always close to tied together. Not only do they work closely with the police, but but the police themselves are the ones responsible for collecting the evidence. The district attorney then uses to prosecute said crimes. Right, it's it's somewhat indirect, but the district attorney off actually issues orders the police have to fulfill, and so it's a it it is a strange relationship, um, and and it's a relationship that, that should we should probably we discuss probably at length another time, but but what I want to point out there is the is that the Supreme Court has decided that as long as the police officers are doing something. In carrying out the law, um, something reasonable. There's 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 a few words that you can attach to it, but ultimately it's going to be uh, that that can maybe limit it to a degree. But as long as they're doing something in line with the law, they uh, are immune to civil suits. Now, civil suits are the things that a citizen can, can actually initiate. Right? If if someone uh, does something to you, you can try and sue them. And people may sue for a lot of strange reasons these days, but there are a lot of good reasons why you might if some if the police happen to break into your house yeah and it's no the wrong great, house, it's a great example of that right and they happen to break into your house destroy a lot of stuff and often they'll do you hear stories in these about uh you know they'll shoot the dog or whatever on their in the process rightfully so because the dog could be a threat to them if they're going to be invading this house and then it turns out it's the wrong house. Well, right, rightfully you don't have, so, assuming that it was a justified raid. <laughs> assuming that it was a justified raid, correct. 
we're talking in our example, they're not even at the right house. So it's obviously it's unjustified. So there's, there's nothing right about right. them shooting anything. Right. And yet you have no civil recourse to this. So like, oh, it's just an innocent mistake, an, on, an honest mistake in carrying out their duty. These, these kind of mistakes happen. Sorry. And, and it's this kind of qualified immunity that, that we see. Qualified immunity doesn't quite cover this, but, but it's also related to the idea, this whole idea of how we treat cops differently than ordinary citizens. They get a pass on some things that ordinary people do not. And you see that with like, like right now with the George Floyd case, it looks like we're going to get justice here. You know, there's going to be prosecutions. They're going to try him if they can manage to put together sufficient evidence to make it worth trying on second degree murder. Um, and rightfully so, if, you know, assuming they can find the evidence for that, they should at least, at least be third degree, uh, murder, if not second. But he, after it happened, there was like three days before they arrested him. And that's, how could there be three days? <laughs> like that three day period? No one else would get that. A police officer may get that in some cases, but an ordinary person involved closely in the death of yeah, someone ne- like never, that never would have left the scene if there were police officers already there, which right. there were. Which there, which there obviously were. Yeah, they, they're not going to leave the scene, let alone let alone be able to go and spend three days. And it, and it appears that in a lot of these cases with the police, bef- to get the the prosecuting attorney to actually prosecute, you almost need a public show. You almost need protests. Mm-hmm. You almost need some kind of social pressure to to get the process started. Otherwise, so often it's just kind of assumed that they're that it was a mistake and that they or that they had to do it. Well, and and that's and that's kind of the the concern, which I think is getting into the area, the kind of the first area of of reform that we're we're talking about here, which is there's there's not a lot of external control. You know, you talked about how in terms of suing, as long as they were honest, right, as long as they were sincerely trying to do their job, they basically are immune. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of caveats and, and there's lots of technicalities. Yeah, if you can, yeah, but if that's you can, the gist Right, of it. right. If you can't show that they're no, grossly and, violating their... And, and a lot of people would say, okay, well, that makes sense. But let's think about a corporation. Let's say a corporation makes an energy drink and they make a mistake and that energy drink is lethal, and it kills a hundred people. <laughs> right? No, this, this is my hypothetical. Right? No, it's no, it's and a good they, point. Like, yeah, I'm just laughing. And it's... this happens all the time. This happens all the time with drug companies, right? They they tried to do their best, and they made a mistake. And if it, if 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 the government finds out that they didn't make a mistake, but that they actually hid the fact that they knew that it would kill people, then they're going to face criminal charges. But if they can prove that they didn't know, then they're not get, they're, they may not get the criminal charges, but they are going to get their pants sued off <laughs> by all those who were hurt, right? Right. The, the fact that they didn't mean to is not a defense because those people are dead or maimed or whatever, and that's real. That happened. Right. That's You're responsible for the consequences be, regardless of your exactly. intentions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Your intentions may elevate it to criminal, as you suggested, but it's not going to reduce it to nothing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's that's literally what manslaughter as a legal term mm-hmm. is there for, is yeah. if you kill someone on accident, you still killed them. 
Yeah, and there's still repercussions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right, rightfully exactly. so. Rightfully so. Unless they can show that as long as your negligence is involved, then yes, you bear mm-hmm. some responsibility for it. That's implied mm-hmm. by negligence. Yeah, exactly. And that and that goes back to to our, our more primitive example of, of, you know, defending life and liberty, you know, that on our, our, our natural state of nature, that that if I if I hurt you or damage you through my negligence, there's there's recompense to be had, regardless of who I am. And so and so I was gonna take that example with the corporation farther. Let's say that, you know, because right now there are governing bodies, there's the FDA that looks over these these food companies, these drug companies, and you know, this energy drink company. Let's say that this energy drink company you know, up the their board members also happen to be they they work two jobs and they work for the energy drink company and they also work for the FDA. Right. And they're the ones regulating the energy drink company and investigating. <laughs> but if you heard that that was happening, you'd be like, okay, something's fishy going on here and they're right. definitely protecting their interests. Right. right. And and that's the same thing you have with with the police, with the district attorneys. They are all on the same side and they're working together. They're a team. That's their yeah. job. That's what their job's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, and they're not even necessarily a and, team to and, screw you over, per se. We're not suggesting bad no. motive on, on these people at all. We're just suggesting that the proximity, the connections, give them incentives uh, that blur the lines. Just like you wouldn't report on your friends or on your work associates or would be less likely to if you're regularly working with them, you, you'd be less likely in this case. Yeah, and, and let me give you an example. In 2005, there was there was something called the, the Danziger Bridge shootings. It was right after Hurricane Katrina when some police officers responded to a call that officers were being shot at, right? So this is a high-energy, high-intensity situation. Yeah, once bullets are fired, it's and, freaky. And the police show up, you know, it's they, they see people crossing the bridge, and they open fire on them. These people happen to be passersby unarmed passersby Jeez. and and the police officers you know um claim that they were being fired at obviously not by these individuals and and two of those individuals end up end up dying and several of them end up being injured right so so obviously first of all i don't think those officers and it seems pretty clear those officers did not intend to do that those right. officers were trying right. to protect their fellow officers and and they made a mistake and 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 that's the reality of what happened so so when when the police conduct their investigation and and very early on they decide to to misrepresent what happened and in fact not only the officers there but one of the officers in that same department who was sent to collect evidence and investigate actually instructed them on what to say and what to do in order to change the evidence so that it looked like a justified shooting. And and you can see why they would do that because these people are already dead, but now these police officers could lose their jobs. They could go to prison and and they're thinking, hey, we're just trying to protect people, right? And it, it makes sense. It makes sense why this happened. 
Because it this officer is trying to look out for his fellow officers. They're just trying to make it through the day. And, and so it makes sense for them to do this because, once again, where's that oversight? Yeah. You know, and it's only later on when there's a federal investigation that comes in and sees their sloppy work and notices the discrepancies that they come out and say, hey, hold on, this doesn't add up. Dig more and find out the truth of what happened. But, but the fact that that happened is, <laughs> is, is evident of, of that, of the fact that their incentives are so skewed to protect each other. And it makes, like you said, it makes so much sense. Like, like in that circumstance, you've just accidentally shot some people. You, you were trying to do the right thing. We can, we can put the best of intentions on these people. And you're the guy who comes there. You're looking at the evidence. You realize that this wasn't look good. Everyone's freaked out. And in the moment you think, man, I mean, maybe what if they get accused of murder? Like, what if, what if they don't believe that they were trying, you know, that they were, they don't believe yeah, in the exactly. good intentions Thanks. of these cops. Like this could go bad so quickly that I know these guys. I know they're good cops. I know they didn't mean to do this, but will a jury? I don't know. And mm-hmm. making the call to be like, let's, let's, it's going to be better for everybody if the evidence tells a slightly different story. And that, the fact that I can, like, you can, you can just see what, how that came about and, and seeing that is a perfect example because it, when you realize that with the best of intentions in the world, their incentives may align to, to lying to the public to cover for people that they know are good people per se, you just know that this is happening far more and, times than it's being caught. And, and I want to follow it up with one more thought though, because, because that's an extreme scenario where, where you right. have corruption, right? On right. a fundamental level. But, but as someone, I, I, I work in a warehouse and I'm a manager, right? And so I'm responsible for discipline. And there are a set of rules <laughs> that I have to enforce, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I know for a fact that it is impossible to enforce those rules perfectly. And I think you can talk to any manager, yeah. you can talk to any police officer, anyone who enforces rules, and they and they will tell you the same thing, that you cannot enforce it perfectly, which means that it comes down to your discretion, right? Right. So cut cut for me as a manager now to a district attorney and he is he is prosecuting, you know, hardened criminals a certain way, and then he's now supposed to prosecute police officers. Not just police officers, but police officers that his department has worked with on a regular basis to convict these hardened criminals. Yeah. Now, yeah. you don't need corruption for that district attorney and his entire department to behave differently towards the police than he does towards a citizen, right? Yeah, you, That's you, not corruption. That's not no. anyone doing anything strictly unethical. That's just human nature. Yeah. 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 yeah like, just like I have a hard time not treating my, my best performers who are always there on time. Who, who who do what needs to be done, it's hard not to treat them differently when they make a mistake versus the guy who's always causing problems makes a mistake in how I respond to that. Yeah. It's hard. It's yeah, hard no, not it's... to do that. And I can see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes just bad things happen. 
<laughs> and you're more willing to to believe that when it's someone that you know well and you and you think that they're a good person or that they've they've worked hard. Like you said, they're the, to give them the benefit of the doubt right, than the repeat right. offender. Right, and it's all, not only is it more tempting to, it's almost unavoidable that you do, whether you intend to mm-hmm. or not, whether you consciously note it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a, that's one of these things where you think that, that maybe there's something systemic that could change, right? This is not, this isn't, you're not, not saying per se that there's some big conspiracy. It's just that human nature is such that these circumstances are going to lead to a degree of leniency that perhaps is going to, uh, be more, be a little more biased than we would like. And that over the course of many cases that that's going to have an, have a, have an impact on how people perceive the police and, and how, and how people get to the point now where where they feel very strongly that the police are being treated by a different standard than they are. And and like you said before, with the qualified immunity, it's not just feelings that we're talking about. We're talking about <laughs> right. the the law of the land. The, the the police are prosecuted, you know, in a different way. Not just not just legally, but civilly. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the process is different. You know, if a police officer, you know, is involved in a shooting, there's an internal investigation, right? And right. that in that investigation, there, there are lots of different rules and different precincts and all of that. So it's not like their best friend is investigating them. And I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that it's a different process. It's a different process than what your average citizen is getting. Yeah. And, and to take it back to our example of the sheriff, like like you imagine 20 people, 20 families per se, or, or maybe a couple communities of 20 that have decided to get together and, and get and pay one person to kind of take care of things. Once that person does something wrong, what happens to that person? I mean, does he get some special treatment? Would he be treat? Would they be like, oh, that's the sheriff. It's okay if he shoots an innocent person. Of course not. It would be it would be silly to treat the person you're paying to do what you could already do by a different standard than you would treat yourself. It just doesn't make any sense. Whatever limitations you would impose on yourself, you're naturally going to impose on your agent, right? The person acting on your behalf. To to hold them to a lower standard doesn't make any sense. In fact, when you hire somebody who's supposed to be a professional at something, you feel like you should get a high, if anything, you should get a higher standard, but at least we could exactly. say the moral standard is the same and that, that any act they take should be judged by a similar standard of justice, which is what I mean when I say moral standard, as as anybody else. Because like you said before, whether or not they're a police officer does not change what's right and what's wrong. Right. Right. It, it, it has... It should have no bearing on justice. Their exactly. position in the community should have no bearing on justice. It, otherwise, I mean, we talk about things like there's concepts like the rule of law that are often talked about, and the rule of the value of the rule of law, and uh, it, but the rule of law at least implies that we're treated equally under the law, and and that the law is applied to everyone fairly. The idea is that the law rules, not one particular person, but. It seems like we have the rule of a law, and then we have the rule of another law if you were a government agent of some kind. And, and the police have, have one standard, mm-hmm. and, and maybe others have different standards. But that, 
I, of course that chafes against people. Why should your agent, why should someone acting on your behalf to do things that you could do for yourself, that you were paying to do them, have extra protections when they wrong you? That, that seems so twisted. How did they become mm-hmm. greater than the, the body that, you know, than the people who give them <laughs> their, their, who create their position per se, or who, who, who hired them anyway. So there's a, we've talked about a couple different practical things, uh, our legal things and systemic things, the, the relationship between the prosecutor and the police, um, the qualified immunity, which is literally on the books in their Supreme court cases. You can look into about this in, in the idea that the, on the books, the laws say that the police should be treated differently. The no-knock raids. Do you want to say anything more about no-knock raids? Uh, people, yeah, I'm so glad it's in the news finally, and and hopefully lots of people are looking into it because this is a this no-knock raids are a situation where it where it's just a bad idea to be in this situation unless you absolutely have to be breaking into someone's house, aren't with guns drawn is not where you want to be as a police officer. It makes it much more likely than in other situations that that person's going to respond with violence. And that may be because that person... No, go ahead. Well, it's interesting because we talk about de-escalation a lot when it comes to police interactions with with people. I mean, I remember a few years ago when that was huge, right? Mm -hmm. And and looking at what can we do to de-escalate these situations between the police and individuals. And no-knock raids, as you said, really are a systemic problem because they are inherently going to escalate situations that aren't necessarily yeah. – don't necessarily have to be escalated. Yeah. And that, – that's, that's a good way to think of it. I like that, that it's – that it takes, a, it takes a situation where you might approach someone and – arrest them, bring them in, and then execute a, or execute a search warrant in some way and says, wait, what we should do is we should pull out our guns and we should do it so fast that they may or may not know it's the police that are coming at them. And that's where the innocent until proven guilty, I think, would become a factor, which is something that I strongly believe in. Because to be honest, I mean, if you want to, if you want to go with the most efficient way and the, the least likely that the criminal will escape or that the police will be harmed, then the answer is simple. It's a smart bomb. You drop it right on the home <laughs> and kill everyone inside. No, I'm serious. No, I, you're I absolutely know right. Extreme, no, but let's no, take no. It to but the, the extreme. But the, but the theory makes sense. Yes, yeah, that's that's a good point. That if, if you want no chance of escape, and you want you want absolute surety, you're going to get the person. You drone strike them. That's what but you do with modern technology. But that's not. What should be happening in the United States, and neither is a no-knock rate, which is obviously not as extreme, but it's moving in that direction because it's saying that the criminals are so nefarious and so bad that we have to be that we have to be ready to take them down at a moment's notice. That we need to break in in the middle of the night so that they have no idea what's going on, and you know, and guns blazing and see what happens. Yeah, it's it's, it's asking for people to be hurt. And and so that's the thing is I mean what I mean historically what has that kind of tactic been used for and the the first thing that comes to mind for me 
would be a hostage negotiation, right? Yeah, yeah, that the SWAT team got, busting in. You've yeah. got bad guys who've got twenty kids in a, in a school, and you send SWAT in to take those guys out because at that point we're we're not as concerned nearly about the criminal's life as we are about the children's lives, right? Right. That is a very different situation, right? Than and someone you- who is asleep in their bed at home, not doing anything to anyone. There is no urgency. Right, right. That, that, that's a really good description of how it should be used. Because in in those in a hostage situation, you exhaust the other options first, rightfully so. Ideally, no violence yes. is necessary at all. But if you need to, if, if, if there's no other, it, it almost becomes a necessity that you apply that kind of tactic. And that's, and that's when it becomes acceptable because it's, you're out of other good options. <laughs> you're picking from and, bad and- options at that point. And you accept that, and we can go back, and we can go back to the principle of of what is the basis of their power, right? That if if I'm outside a building and there are hostages being held inside, I I have a right to go in and shoot the hostage takers to protect those who are about to be killed, right? Right. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there have even been instances where civilians have fired back. And they're lauded as heroes, right? Right, right. Whether in, and this is setting aside the concerns of whether this is a practically speaking a good idea or not, you absolutely have yeah. the authority to do that. And in but, some cases, depending now on your training, to, you absolutely should. But go ahead. But now switch to here. I am a civilian, and I suspect that my next door neighbor is committing a crime. You know what I mean? I suspect that he that he actually murdered someone. Like we're talking serious crimes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to break into his home in the middle of the night and arrest him to see if it's true. There's there's no right for that and there's no reason for that. You know what I right. mean? Right. All what of a sudden it, it makes, makes no sense. That's why in practice, uh, no-knock raids are most often used related to drugs because there becomes a there comes a there's a second factor involved, right? You you want to hit the house when they're not expecting you because it turns out a really good way to get rid of drugs is to flush them down your toilet. And so and so if you go and knock on the door and they see you coming, they look out the window and they say, "Oh, it's the police. Quick, go flush the drugs down the toilet." And then the police mm-hmm. come in there. They say, we've got a search warrant, and they go and they search the house, right? No guns drawn, no, no, not a no-knock raid, just a normal execution of a search warrant. And they go in there, and they look around, and surprise, surprise, they don't find the couple pounds of drugs that they were looking for. They've just been flushed down the toilet. Um, but the question is, at that point, if, if, that, if you think, well, yes, we, wanna, we, we absolutely want to catch the people who are doing drugs, we'll put, we'll put any question of 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 drug laws aside at this point. Just assume that drug laws are just. Mm-hmm. Is catching that person with with a small enough amount of drugs that flushing them down the toilet is practical or burning them? I don't know how else you would get rid of them. The classic way is flushing them. If they have a small enough amount of drugs that they can get rid of it in a few minutes, is it worth risking their life and the lives of the police officers by going in there at gunpoint. And that, I think, is an excellent point, that that if we're talking, I mean, if we're talking that they're they're about to break in and what's going on inside is a full-blown meth lab operation. Right. We've got eight guys working around the right. clock in this chemistry lab in the right. basement. 
this is a serious distributor, right? Right. It's exactly, you know, there's no way they're getting rid of all that evidence in 60 seconds. No, no, this is the difference between a no-knock raid and a search warrant catching drug users is only going to affect a very small group. And it's a group that it's almost hard to care about (laughs) and that it's very hard to justify the risk of death for. I agree. I agree completely. And, and, and that's, I think, where we come back to, to what is justified in what, what we could do. And that's, I think, how we have to look on it. Look at it is, is that something that I would feel justified in doing? Then maybe the police officer shouldn't be doing it if I wouldn't be justified. And I think that definitely applies to no-knock raids, that they, that they maybe should be used but very, very sparingly, which is yeah. not how they're used now. No, it's gotten to the point. The, the, ACL, the ACLU did a study on it. And, uh, and one of the things they found that was just bizarre was that it was becoming, in some places, it was becoming the normal way that police officers execute a search warrant. That they're, they're like, uh, and it seemed to be based on the idea that it was good practice. Good, good practice for the SWAT teams and things. So they would just be like, okay, we need to execute a search warrant. Why don't you guys get your gear and go? And I, I didn't look into the numbers enough to, to, to check the validity of it. But the ACLU generally is really good on crime statistics and things, regardless of what you think of their politics. And it was just, just surprising to me. Obvi- like, hopefully that isn't happening that much. It should never happen. Even in the cases that normally well, we well, would think those things are justified, it should happen much less. Now that, that's, that is, is incredibly upsetting. <laughs> that it would be done even in Let's cases where they don't have any idea of drugs where it's where it's not necessary at all right because if, if you're worried about someone getting away what you do is you surround the house and you knock yeah it's easily remedied and that's you don't and that's yeah. been policy for normal right normal <laughs> right 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 Right. You don't, you can, you can keep them from getting away. away. Right. The only reason for a no knock raid or the the most constantly used reason is that they'll destroy key evidence inside. But if they have so little evidence in terms of drugs that you can destroy it, it just, it's just so easy for both police officers and for ordinary people to be hurt in these situations. It's so easy. You've got your gun drawn. You're, you're, you go in expecting resistance and it's, it's a recipe for disaster should be applied as infrequently as absolutely possible. There are two other things I wanted to mention. One of the things is that police officers are generally, police departments generally do not report things in a consistent manner. And, uh, and there, we could do a lot to change general transparency in police reporting, uh, make police reporting consistent across precincts, um, even consistent across states could be helpful at least, or at least have the discrepancies noted so that we can compile national statistics when necessary. Um, this is one of the things people talk about a lot of body cams, uh, body cams may or may not make a significant difference in terms of what actually happens. It at least gives us more information. You'd be surprised how many things, things like no knock raids have gone on for years and there've been a lot of disasters with them, but it's a, it was a problem of reporting. And we just didn't have good data in front of legislators. And we never heard about it. And we never heard about it. Yeah, it didn't make the news. It was written up as accidents. It was, it was, you know, people see drugs and they see somebody died and, and often write, well, and write those many, things kind of up. It's a normal story. And, and how many, how many horrible things like, like George Floyd's murder, 
have occurred in the past that 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 people locally heard about, but yeah. that was never able to spread like it did, you know, in in today's yeah. world because of the technology, right? Because we were able to physically see what happened, right? Right. At least at least these things need to make it into quantifiable data so that so that someone later can look at take all these anecdotes, put them together, and say and see if there are trends and things. Um, and that's happened in the things that we've been discussing tonight. There is good data on a lot of them now at this point, but certainly, uh, at least in some areas, often, often, uh, um, when, as I've been scanning different data on different, different criminal statistics, one of the things I find a lot is that, that people are, is that you'll have data collected from a couple places that are reporting it well, some states or maybe, uh, large precincts, and then, they'll have to extrapolate from that and assume how the rest of the nation is doing, right? They're, they're saying, well, this is how it's going from all here. From who aren't reporting right. well, yeah. Right, right. And so in that kind of thing, is just uh, it, it's just better to have more data. And, and certainly police body cams, I know there are times where they're turned off or whatever. Um, but even that, even, even if we say that the police officer had a body camera, but it was turned off during this incident, incident, that's a useful piece of information, and that it does that tell can, us something. It tells you something, right? Right, and Especially maybe all it tells you is the body cams are Yeah, yes, but once it becomes a pattern, but, right? But as a right. pattern over a large scale, right? So that gives you information, and you can. And body cams are still fairly new. Uh, I know. <laughs> I heard somebody say, "Yeah, they don't work because police officers just turn them off." And it's like, aren't there punishments if you turn them off? Like if they, you know, maybe mm-hmm. if there's a flaw with it, then. Fair enough. That's not your fault. But if you're turning it off randomly, <laughs> leaving it off, shouldn't there be some? Anyway, those things can develop. And uh, and I think body cams will do and will make more and more of a difference as time goes on. Um, anything that gives us, like I said, anything that gives us more data, body cams, um, those things, more transparency, those are going to be helpful for making clear decisions in the future. It's it's bizarre how how little information you have. And go to your state legislature and ask for numbers on crimes in your state and different crimes, and you'd be surprised. The one other thing, and this is somewhat separate from the others, because a lot of what we've set up to this point has is, is been about things that lead to police violence or to treating the police officers differently. And this one, this one, in some ways, it's it's so big and it's so important, <laughs> but it's not it's not nearly as flashy as these other things. And it's one of those things that would benefit a great deal from better reporting. And it's civil asset forfeiture. And if you haven't heard of civil asset forfeiture, you're missing what may be the biggest way, the most common way that police powers are abused. And the way that civil asset forfeiture works, sometimes called uh, civil judicial forfeiture, if you hear civil in it and you're familiar with law, you're probably going to get a misleading idea about how this works because normally we think of of criminal cases and civil cases, right? Where criminal cases, you've broken a criminal statute and, and you've harmed someone in some way. Whereas civil, you know, it's a, it's a dispute of a, a different kind of dispute. But civil asset forfeiture is when the police, this is, I've, I've taken this directly from the Wikipedia page because I thought the description was funny. This is what the Wikipedia, how the Wikipedia page summarizes it. It says, it is a process in which law enforcement officers take assets from persons suspected of involvement with crime or legal activity without necessarily charging the owners with wrongdoing. 
While civil procedure, as opposed to criminal procedure, generally involves a dispute between two private citizens, civil forfeiture involves a dispute between law enforcement and property. Well, you lost me right there. (laughs) Civil asset forfeiture involves a dispute between law enforcement and property, such as a pile of cash or a house or a boat, such that the thing the property, is suspected of being involved in a crime. In other words, what you're saying is that take your classic, you know, law and order scene, the police, you know, you know, they, they have their search warrant, they say, you know, open up, it's the police, they, they break open the door, they head to the back room, they grab the pile of money, and they say, you're under arrest, and stuff it in their bag, is that about right? Is that what you're saying? Very close, very close. So if they arrest you and charge you, they may seize items as evidence. Civil asset forfeiture is where they do all of that, and they seize the money, (laughs) and then they leave and they don't charge you or arrest you. Because they don't have the evidence against you, but they think this money might be criminal. (laughs) Which which I'm, I'm trying not to laugh. Um... Because it sounds like what you're just describing is that the police can can steal whatever they want, whenever they want. Well, then that money that they seized goes directly into funding the police department, (laughs) which this is not funny. I should not be laughing. So here's here's how this is generally applied. The police pull over someone in their car and they they say they smell marijuana or whatever. And they they tell the person, they, they go and they search this person's car. Well, this guy has $10,000 in cash on him. And he says, you know, I was going to go buy a car. I'm on my way. Or I just sold my house and I'm moving or whatever it may be. And the police go, it's weird for someone to carry $10,000 in cash. So we're just going to take this. Now they have no evidence that he's committed anything except perhaps the existence of what what they are is vaguely suspicious, right? They have no case. So my question would be, what can what is that man's resource recourse to get his money back? <laughs> right. So this is the weirdest part, and this is what I don't know. Continuing on the Wikipedia page to get back the seized property, owners must prove it was not involved in criminal activity. It being the property, and and this is obviously I I didn't learn about this from the Wikipedia page. For the record, I've been following this for many years. <laughs> But the Wikipedia page had put it so concisely and in such a funny way that it just cracked me up to no end. I, I, because this is how it works. What happens is, so, so you go in, they, they seize this asset. They seize this item because they think that it's suspicious. Uh, they, they really don't even have to give a reason because their issue is with the item not necessarily with you. So then they take it and they leave, right? You're the person who owns this stack of money that was just taken or this, uh, whatever it may be. It's almost always liquid cash. You, you have a lot of liquid cash and you run into the police. It's very likely that if they become aware of it, they will seize it. And at that point, what you can do is you can go and try and show that that money was not being used for anything else. You, you take whatever evidence you have, your, your bank note, your, your witnesses, the, the person whose car you were going to buy, whatever you have to do, and you go and you negotiate with them and you try and prove it, that you weren't going to use that for something bad. 
or that it wasn't involved in some drug drugs sales or something like that. And at that point, they will give you, depending on how it's settled, a portion of that money back. Not all of it. Not all of Even it. Even if you prove that it wasn't used in anything. Even illegal, if you, you prove that it, it wasn't. Back? No, you, it's almost always a settlement. Almost always a settlement of some kind. And, and so, if this isn't the most obviously unjust thing you've ever heard, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, if this isn't the most striking thing, and you think, and, and, if, and if you go, well, that's bizarre, that must almost never happen. You'd be wrong. This this makes up a sizable portion of the funding of a lot of police departments. And that's why it's so pernicious. They get to use this money. Because this the money. incentives are set up for them to do it right. as often as possible. Right. right. Even if you didn't let them use that money, you've got to think that the, the amount of times this happens would go way down. But But beyond that, how is it just that they get to seize something from some that somebody owns, I own this money, say, why do they get to seize my money if they don't even have a crime to accuse me of? Like the property property doesn't commit crimes. <laughs> it's a it's such a strange thing. Uh I the logic behind it and, and you can see why you can see why it was implemented, right? You you get you get large amounts of money and you know it's related to drugs or something like that. And so you seize that and you, and the, the idea initially, this is what's interesting about it is that built into this practice is, is the plan for drug money to be used by the cops to take kick, to take out more drugs. So that, that's like, that's how this idea is sold. Like without this, there would be more drugs on the street. Because the police officers take this drug money and they then use it on the police department to be more effective and to catch more drug users or more drug uh, sales or whatever it is, more criminals. Yeah, and but I don't think most people would have a problem with police using, you know, seized funds from a convicted criminal. I, I really don't think people are going to have an issue with that. I'm not sure I have really an issue with that. You know, yeah. for me, the issue is... <laughs> The issue is is that is that our whole criminal justice system is built on the idea that we're innocent until proven guilty, right? That if right. I walk down the street not doing anything wrong, I have nothing to fear. Yeah. But but what you're telling me is that is that <laughs> if I'm doing something weird and I have assets that are worth seizing, which obviously <laughs> comes down to money, that 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 I, I I shouldn't I shouldn't do that. It's weird because I I immediately think of a coworker I have who hoards physical money. Yeah. I don't know why he does it. He's 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 an interesting guy. But anyways, he hoards money because he doesn't like to have it in his bank. I mean, mm -hmm. and and that's it's his savings. You know what I mean? It's just his right. savings, and he just keeps it in his home. If the police now, I'm thinking if the police ever found out about that money. They would definitely seize it because they it would, would look suspicious. It. it would it would look extremely suspicious. And he, and he would have no solid evidence besides witnesses of his family, which wouldn't hold up, and he probably wouldn't be able to get his money back. No, and, if any, and yeah. not for doing anything wrong. It's just his life savings. <laughs> right, right. It's it's so odd. It, like you said, it puts people in that position where they're guilty until proven innocent, and it is so hard 
to prove innocence. You're not daily keeping track of the things that would prove your innocence. You're not making notes yes, and, exactly. and, having, and having ordinary people sign documents about what you're doing so that you can prove that you're innocent later. Let alone trying to prove the innocence of your money. <laughs> Let alone trying to prove the innocence of your money. Um, it, it's, it's just a – again, it's one of those things where the incentives, like you said, the incentives are just so poorly aligned that you that it's it begs to be abused it, it begs to be used by by anybody who needs more money in their police department which i bet if you would ask police officers they probably feel like their police department could use more funding most public things do feel like they need more money mm-hmm. but it's it's a a lot of people have called it policing for profit <laughs> you could uh, you go uh it's the one thing that police officers get to do where they make a buck. Um, and like but, you said, but I really, don't... it's much worse than that. It's to me, it sounds much more reminiscent of a mafia shakedown, <laughs> right? Which, which I find deeply disturbing. No, yeah, you get to the point where like you're looking for drugs or you're looking for large amounts of money. Both are good. This is not how this was supposed to be. This is not how this works. Like you said, if if you can arrest someone, if you have evidence of a crime, charge them, and then seize the stuff as potential evidence, right? And then that stuff sits in evidence. It's not touched. It's not spent. It's not negotiated. And they get it all back if they're innocent, right? It's a, it, it goes through an entirely different process. But if you, the civil asset forfeiture immediately puts it into a different pool, and it's, it's just, a, just a bad way I don't know if it goes into the evidence locker. This is potential evidence of a potential crime that may or may not have been committed and which we're not charging anybody with. How do you? Yeah, I mean, when when you say it like that, it just sounds insane. It sounds insane that this actually happens and, and, and we let it happen. Yeah. If you were to look it up today, you say uh, civil asset forfeiture, what you would find is you would find a lot of political officials defending it. And a lot of people being like, this is a this is an essential tool of police officers. And they often talk about funding and things like that. It's it's silly. And it and it's a it's another one of those things that like like murders get recorded. They get recorded somewhere. Um those things are gonna make it into stats. Civil asset forfeiture, what are the stats on that? Some states, you can find it. Some states have realized that uh, people, different groups, uh different think tanks, different bodies have been like, wait a second, this seems sketchy. And then they try and look at the data. They find that there is almost no good information on it. Police precincts aren't either aren't reporting it or they're reporting it differently or they're, uh, it may vary. And, and, and so then they go to the state legislature and they pass laws changing how police report it. And then they get good information and then they freak out and they're like, wait, this is, this is how this works and it's this common. And that's when, when you start to hear the stories about these kind of things. It's just, it's just clearly not the right way to do it. If you can convict someone, like you said, of selling drugs and there's drug money there, fine. Where else is it going to go? Use it. But before a conviction, before even an accusation and a charge, before an arrest, <sighs> just so it's clearly disgusting. unjust. Anyway. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting. I'm sitting here having a hard time coming up with something productive to say because I just want to throw my hands <laughs> up in the air. Right. This is one of those things that that the only reason I can I can the only 
re- thing that I can say that to explain its existence is lack of knowledge. Most people just don't know about it. That's, that's the only way I can explain to myself how the world allows this to continue. And if, if more people knew about it, I think it would go away. And it would go away very quickly. Anyway, the state level, what happens when I was following debates and cases on this, what happened is, is you get, you get police officers who come in and talk about how critical it is to their work. And, and legislators have all a the hard money that time. they're getting. Yes. <laughs> I don't say that, but, but you know, that's what they, no, I, most of the time we, we're, we try very hard, Brad and I, to, to put the best of intentions on the situation so that we're not, we're not assuming in any of these cases bad eggs. We're talking about things well, that are and, problems and for with the, the way record, the align. I stand by that, that I, I have seen a lot of people in a lot of different positions, both official and otherwise, and I have rarely met truly evil people. Right. In fact, I can't think of a single person that I've known at least decently well that I can say, that person is just evil. That person is out to destroy and has complete disregard for other people. Yeah. yeah and, and you know, for the most that. part, people people are people are good but they're also trying to make it by and that's why i mentioned incentives before because when it comes down to it and i've seen that in my own life that i will often make not the best choices and you know and like i think about a lot of institutional things that point me certain directions and make it a lot easier to make certain choices and and i think that's something that we see a lot in terms of things like this like you said for if I were a police officer and this is where most of our revenue is coming from, yeah, or at least how am I going to give yeah, that up? The significant Especially portion if I believe that the money we're getting was going to be used for nefarious purposes. Right. And, you know, and, and if in, I believe that, why wouldn't I? And in any particular circumstance, like I don't carry $10,000 in cash around. If I saw someone else carrying $10,000 in cash, <laughs> right, right, I would be like, that's weird. And that's all exactly. they need. That's all they need under civil asset forfeiture. That's that, that, it's like you, you talk about like burdens, different levels of evidence required for different things in law. This one is just like a gut hunch, like a, a bad feeling is all it takes to. And and I know some people may listen to this and say say yeah that's that's bad, but. What's really bad here is 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 the murders, right? Is where the police are killing yes. people. And and I agree that those are the worst. But but the thing that I keep thinking about when you gave that car example is is most people are living are living paycheck to paycheck or maybe one or two paychecks out. And so if if someone for whatever reason does carry 10 grand in cash to go buy their car cuz they sold their last car that ten grand is not a luxury to them. That ten grand is not eh, whatever. That ten grand is everything to them because that is probably the majority of their saved assets. You know, in this mm-hmm. hypothetical mm-hmm. scenario, and you take that ten grand away, yeah. and now they don't have a car. Now they can't get to work, and they don't have the money to replace it because that money's gone. Right, and now they need a they you know need a I mean? le- to make to to do a league to have some kind of a legal battle to get it back. Yeah, and is, where are they going to get the money for the legal right, battle? Right. When when they're spending all the excess money they can scratch together 
to rent a car so they can make it to work. Right. Right. Uh, in a lot of these cases, like, you know, it's people who are new to the country or something and they, they don't, they haven't set up a banking, you know, thing or they're, they're between banks or, you know, circumstance, strange, mm-hmm. strange circumstances that often align, as you suggest, with people who this is what they have. This is it. But yeah. No, anyway, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, I, I, I can think of lots of examples of why people would do that. And will a police officer believe the circumstance? The circumstances after he demands them from you. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. After he's exactly. already suspicious. And, and that and that really is the problem is that if 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 police officers don't have to prove before they can take, then that means the taking is unjust, is just wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the long and short of it. Yeah, so we've we've talked about a lot of different things. We we began with the example of of what it's like not having the police, you know, the circumstances where it makes sense not to not to be paying someone to do any policing. Um, and then as you get to that point, we talked about how it kind of grows into this point where it becomes really inconvenient for you to try and do that and to do other things. And so you pay someone basically as your agent to do the things you could already do. They don't have any this this new person, this police officer, this sheriff, whatever, this agent, however you would like to to describe them, is acting on the behalf of the people who hired him to do things that really any individual could do. Because you don't actually need a permission slip to act justly or to to do good or to, you know, help someone. <laughs> like these things are not especially initially there where it's just probably one guy, it's very clear that that one guy is not above the other people. He's not judged by a different standard. He's the only thing that distinguishes him from the others is that he is actively full-time engaged and being paid to defend them, defend their property, defend their rights, defend their, their families, etc. And then when you, when you think of policing in those terms, it becomes very clear that the police officers should not be above you. There should be no qualified immunity. They shouldn't be treated differently by a different standard. And then there are a couple practices that we proposed, you know, legal changes beyond that, the no-knock raids that should probably, that should be extremely limited in their circumstances and how they're applied. Um, very limited specifically to, it should be something pressing and it should be something that you mm-hmm. you just you can't wait on it. You've exhausted your other options. Something uh, dire. Something very because you know, yeah. it's life or death, which means it needs to be life right. or death to justify that. Right. You've decided that that you have to use violence to subdue this person, and that it's likely because of the speed of it that they are going to resist you. To justify that danger, it had better be something very pressing. Somebody's life had better be at stake, because. Otherwise, what justification do you have to put your own life, if you're the police officer, or the lives of, the, of these people at stake? Yeah, and exactly. Then, of course, the practical things, changing transparency, and then civil asset forfeiture, which just needs to go away. Just needs to – those incentives Absolutely. are just too perverse. The way it works now so, is just begging to be abused. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer issue. So, this is the first of many podcasts. I sure hope so. I, I sure hope so too. Uh, we hope we found this engaging. Um, maybe think about things from a slightly different perspective and at least get into some of the particular issues, ones perhaps that you've never heard of. Uh, some of these are 
they're being talked about more now, but certainly very uncommon to hear people talk about them or who think that they were important um, before. But while, and it's so important, I just want to say one more thing that it's so important that we try and make specific changes now, because right now you have such bipartisan support. Everyone thinks that what happened to George Floyd was wrong. And now is the time to seriously consider the police. This is a good time where you've got the the nation's attention. That attention could be used to actually stop more injustice from happening in a variety of ways. And there are systemic Mm -hmm. things that we can address. And so it's like, like that's exciting in some ways. It's a tragedy, but it can be turned to a good purpose if we will just do that. You know, if we would just, if we can concentrate on a few specific things, and and actually work on that. Yeah, I agree. Channel channel that for something good, so that something good can come out. Yeah, let there the be a yeah. Let there be a legacy to this injustice that that is that isn't just division, you know, and anger and frustration. Put that somewhere that that will make a difference. And these are a few places, and and that's a different way of and, thinking and, about policing altogether. And that's part of why we wanted to do this is because because so often, I mean, I know for me, it it really breaks my heart seeing the the contention that occurs because when it comes down to it, like I said, talking to people, we all fundamentally want the same things. And there are there are important issues that people disagree with, and I am not trying to diminish that in any way. <laughs> right. But but we agree on more things than we disagree on. And I think when we break things down to a more fundamental level and when we take a second look at it, we can really we can really see that. Right. And take a second look at it in a way that we, we avoid talking points, you know, which are just substitutions for for the discussion that could get more fully to the heart of it and could communicate more clearly and could actually you know, reach people and change minds and, and unite people. And, and that's hard. And it happens. I mean, those conversations are happening out there, but they're happening in pockets when I would, I would be so much better off if they could happen, you know, across the spectrum. You know, if you could, if you didn't just have a few people who could agree amongst themselves, but could have, you know, at least a basis for discussion, if not agreement, some, some way to communicate. Exactly. But, and, and that's what we're going to try and bring to all the issues that we look at a way to uh, rethinking that issue from sometimes from the ground up, like we have here, where we're, pro- we're proposing a different kind of theoretical basis for police authority, a different way, a different perspective that may, if we think in those terms, help us interpret specific policies so that they're actually more just and actually have a uh, affect society for the better. And that's what we want to bring to a lot of other issues. So. Do you want to introduce what we're going to talk about next next week, next podcast? Well, we, we, we kind of, I mean, kind of hinted at it. I but, mentioned it in passing one, earlier. Yeah. Yeah, and one issue that we didn't talk about intentionally, so we could talk about it later, is is about the fact that police officers, when it comes down to it, their job is to enforce the laws. And we never talked about the fact that if, if the laws they're enforcing are inherently unjust, then it doesn't matter how good a police force we have, what they're doing is going to be morally unjust, right? So if right. the law says that all redheads must be killed, 
right? <laughs> Hypothetically. Then, then as a redhead, the I, I should be killed, right? And so the police, they, whether yeah, or we're not, not they follow kill, all yeah. the right, exactly, yeah. they're still going to kill me and I'll still be dead. And that's the problem. Right. Right, we're not going to complain about whether or not they seized your assets before they killed you, or whether or not they, exactly. <laughs> you know, whether or not exactly. they're going to be because tried be because they're not going to be tried. They were just—it's just the law. <laughs> and so, so police reform is essential, but it's only one of many important steps. And so, the next—the next thing that we really want to talk about is some of those laws and and what the basis for laws should be and what a just law looks like versus an unjust law and how to tell the difference. And I, I am really excited about that. And I think it should be, it should be a lot of fun, at least for me. Yeah. And getting into the specific ones. Yeah. The, the drug laws are one of the, the hotly contested ones. We've addressed it a variety of ways throughout American history. There's a, there's a lot of perspectives uh, and a lot of uh, historical information on the subject. And there's a lot of uh, obviously how it's a, a affected people and and what the state of it is now. And just, there's, there's lots of elements to it. And we just didn't think we could do it justice, uh, trying to consider the just, do it justice, trying to consider the justness. <laughs> oh, a terrible way to phrase that. I see that. what you did there. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. It was awful. Trying to consider the justness <laughs> of, of laws while we're also trying to consider systematic issues that need to be addressed in, in how, policing works and what the what the you know what the basic ideas of it are at least it's just necessary to divide it into two issues so anyway all that's a long way of saying we're going to get into those laws as brad indicated next time and specifically especially we're going to focus on the drug laws war on drugs obviously it's a very complicated issue obviously people people already have strong opinions on it but i promise you the way we're going to discuss it is going to be probably different I can't, I guess I can't promise. I'm going, I'm pretty darn sure the way we're going to approach it, the way we're going to describe it and the way we're going to present it is going to be unlike anything you've heard. And with that, I suppose, thank you for listening. See you next time.